Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. One of the key drivers of chronic inflammation is metabolic dysfunction. So dysregulated metabolism, elevated blood sugar, blood sugar spikes, these things tell the body that there's a problem. These things can cause upregulation of inflammatory cytokines. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Do you need to detox? January is really a time where the word detox gets thrown around and people spew all kinds of craziness on both sides of the fence. But here's the thing. We need to show respect where respect is due, my friends. Detox is amazing, and I happen to have a pretty intimate connection and knowledge on what detox looks like and when it is slowed. From waking up with a puffy face or your eyes being swollen or retaining water weight or having skin stuff like acne, eczema, etc. pop up or identifying as a sweaty person, not handling alcohol like I did when I was 21, not waking up energized, waking up in the middle of the night, even some interesting eye symptoms I can trace to my detox systems. So what do you do? Well, thank God this is a podcast and not a Twitter post because it doesn't fit in 140 characters. When people ask me questions like, what do you think of this chlorella supplement or dandelion tea or juice cleanse? I want to sit down and give you the 101 on what's happening inside your body so you know exactly if and what that tea or supplement will or will not help. That's why I'm doing a live detox masterclass on January 8th. Don't worry, a replay will be available if you register for the live version. In my Detox Masterclass, you'll get the Detox 411 of what's going on on the inside and outside of your body, plus simple shifts you can make to make these systems work better. You'll get how often you should give your body some love on your detox pathways, so your skin, digestion, energy, and just your body in general runs at its absolute best. You'll also get my two-week detox protocol that you can use, then rinse and repeat to affect everything from how much fluid you're retaining to improving sleep and energy to how much you sweat to that bare nose that you have. I've been wanting to do this forever and we're finally doing it. So just go to kristabigler.com forward slash detox to take my do you need to detox quiz and register for this jam-packed masterclass. You do not 
want to miss it. So we'll have this link in the show notes as well, but it's kristabigler.com forward slash detox. I'll see you there. All right. Today on The Less Stressed Life, we have a fun, nerdy topic for you. We have Casey Means, who is a Stanford-trained physician, chief medical officer, and co-founder of the metabolic health company Levels, and associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. I feel like these are big jobs. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. It kind of sounds too good to be true, but I've been talking to her for the last 20 minutes and I'm really excited for what you guys are in for. So Dr. Mean's perspective is in recently featured in Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, The Hill, Metabolism, Endocrine Today, Endocrine Web, Well and Good, and the How Not to Die series. She's an award-winning biomedical researcher with past positions at NIH, Stanford School of Medicine, and NYU. Welcome, Dr. Means. Thank you so much, Krista. I'm so happy to be here. All right. Well, I can't wait to get into the meat of this, and I'm glad we went through it. But let's get into, okay, how does this start? I think, honestly, your story is the most powerful. So let's start there because you've got a big job now. And so let's talk about how this started. I think it's fun to figure out, like I was telling you, I just got done interviewing someone who writes for Nat Geo and about stress. It's like, you're known for this stress resilience. And I think, yeah, how do you get into the next step of life? And it's always your story. So tell us about how you got to working with metabolic dysfunction. And we'll talk all about that. Absolutely. So it was kind of a circuitous path. So I came to digital health and really an obsession with metabolic health by way of your nose and throat, had a neck surgery. So kind of an odd start. But, you know, I trained as a conventional medical doctor. I then went into surgery. And so I was practicing a trainee in ear, nose and throat, had a neck surgery. And what I noticed after about four and a half years of practicing was that pretty much like all of the conditions I was treating were inflammatory in nature. So it was all the things with, you know, itis at the end, which usually means inflammation. So like sinusitis, thyroiditis, and vocal cord granulomas, which are inflammatory masses of the vocal cords. Uh, chronic ear infections, which are, you know, inflammation of the middle ear tissue that creates pus and fluid buildup. So kind of got me stepping back and saying, like, why is everyone so chronically inflamed? You know, this is inflammation is the immune system being triggered and upregulated constitutively. And that's something we should look deeper into. Certainly was aware of there are so many environmental and lifestyle and nutritional causes of chronic inflammation. And why is this not part of our practice? Why do we reach so quickly for steroids and antibiotics and then ultimately surgery, these fairly morbid interventions when there seems to be like there could be some really low hanging fruit of attacking, you know, these more environmental causes of inflammation. So it became really, really fixated on understanding the root causes of chronic inflammation. And one of the key drivers of chronic inflammation is metabolic dysfunction. So dysregulated metabolism, elevated blood sugar, blood sugar spikes, these things tell the body that there's a problem. These things can cause upregulation of inflammatory cytokines. And what's interesting is that conditions of metabolic dysfunction like obesity and diabetes have upregulation of cytokines like interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha and CRP. And these are actually the exact same cytokines you see upregulated and even some ENT conditions, these seemingly very disparate conditions. But you know, what we know, I think more and more, especially through the study of, you know, network and systems biology, is that a lot of these diseases, which we've often thought were really isolated silos, like totally different things, you know, you think like, okay, acne, depression, IBS, cancer, 
diabetes. These are all totally different. We're going to treat them differently. But when we really look at this more connected network and systems biology perspective, we realize that there's actually a lot of core fundamental biologic processes underneath the surface that are really related to all of them. And so I really think the future of healthcare is going to be figuring out how we can attack those core pathways that affect so many different conditions, these fundamental root causes of disease, which I think will be a much more efficient way to help people deal with our whole host of of symptoms and conditions. And so focusing on metabolic health, I became interested in then the next question is like, how do we improve it? Like if this is a big problem for people and research shows that potentially 88% of the country has metabolic dysfunction. That was a study out of UNC a couple years ago. 88% of the country with at least one biomarker of metabolic dysfunction. Okay, so if we're going to move the needle on this, like, how are we going to do it? And we're going to do it by helping people live healthier lives and make better choices. So it's choices about food, it's choices about environmental exposures, it's choices about how people stress, how they exercise, how much they're sleeping, how they're tending to their microbiome. And those are all behaviors. And So ultimately, the intervention needs to be something related to empowerment and behavior change. And that's where I think digital health just really, really shines because the reality is we have our phones on us all the time. We're very adept at this point at using them to generate data about ourselves. And so I think that there's really neat opportunities to use them as a tool to generate data about our own metabolic health and then help people strive to optimize it. So that's sort of the journey from surgery to now what I'm doing now, which is co-founder of Levels and building this tool that does exactly that, that helps health-seeking individuals essentially understand and improve their metabolic health in real time. I feel like you have a lot of stamina and you're a very progressive doctor because you don't just jump from ENT and surgery into what you're doing now. So it's probably a bit more interesting, like even how that kind of happened, because it would be a side thing for a long time. There's a lot of grit there is what I'm saying, right? A lot of, lot of grit. Yeah. So. I mean, I honestly blame so many of the authors that I was reading during that time, like all these functional medicine and longevity medicine doctors, because they planted these seeds in me. And I think once you start hearing these messages, it's very hard to go back. Some of the key ones that I was reading during my residency were people like Mark Hyman, you know, the Ultramind Solution, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, um, she wrote The Hormone Mm -hmm. Cure, Terry Walls, Dr. Joel Furman, Dr. Michael Greger. I was reading, you know, David Sinclair, Lifespan, like all these people who are really talking about Eric Topol, just doctors who are thinking differently. And I would be walking through the hospital late at night on call and I'd have my audio book playing some of these voices. And once that really root cause approach to healthcare was sort of like embedded in my brain, it's really hard, I think, to turn back. So I blame slash very and very grateful for all these thinkers who have really put their brain to the paper and shared these ways of thinking. I have to also shout out Jason Fung, who wrote Diabetes and Obesity Code. These are some of the ones that just changed my life. And I really, you know, appreciate it. Well, and I think also it might be important for someone to know, I think people are looking for this all the time. And it is accessible, but it's not necessarily everywhere. And why is that? I was telling a, a new client this morning, I said, you know, I think a lot of practitioners, we want to practice differently because the reason we change is either from inspiration or desperation. It's usually desperation. And of course, I'm sure you felt that when you were doing what you were doing in your work. I was doing that as well. And it was like, I can't keep, this is like, I'm burning out here, you know, of course. Mm -hmm. And so my point is, there's not necessarily 
straightforward uniforms. We don't learn this in school, how to do root cause approach stuff so much. I mean, a little but not like in the ways that we apply it to clients now, right? Or apply it to patients now. It's not like that. So I think that's the challenges. And then one of the beauties is that we've evolved because of dissatisfaction, maybe, or the need to be better. And so we've kind of created all of our own avenues there. But it's not like you can just go get trained to understand this. You kind of have to like figure it out. Kind of like a lot of things. I suppose it's any profession, right? Yeah, but it's true. I do think it's true in healthcare. We have a dominant way of thinking and approaching conditions, and it's very, very strong. And it's very focused on reactionary mm-hmm. intervention. So what we sometimes would call sick care instead of healthcare, meaning that we don't tend to really focus or intervene until a disease state has manifested. And then we approach it in this very singular way of like, we're really just playing whack-a-mole with that condition at one time. It's very rare that someone's going to be thinking about chronic ear infections in the context of, oh, well, they also have, you know, IBS and they have Hashimoto's and they have eczema and they have some anxiety. Like, how could these things possibly be related? No, we're going to treat that ear infection, maybe put ear tubes in and that's sort of it. And, And that has worked very well for many conditions. But because the issues that we're facing these days and the majority of morbidity in our country and healthcare cost is chronic disease. These are diseases that are not, they don't require just a little acute fix. They are conditions that have manifested over years, if not decades, and are very frequently related to diet and lifestyle. And so we just can't use the same toolbox and that same approach if we really want to reverse these epidemics at scale. We really, I think, have to be thinking, up front. And that's just not really what has been the dominant thought over the last 50 years or so. But I really see a movement happening. I see doctors thinking about this. A lot of these authors are very, very popular. And so I'm very hopeful. And I also think the economics are moving in that direction too. You know, we're moving towards more value-based care where it's really an equation of outcomes over cost. We want better outcomes for a lower cost. And if we want that, it is always going to drive towards prevention because prevention is cheaper than treatment. And so I think there's good forces at play. Yeah, that's nice. Because in policy, from a side note, though, they can't assign, I think it's called a CBO, Congressional Budget Office, they can't assign a cost to prevention, or they couldn't when I used to go to DC and advocate for prevention. And so it kind of feels, ugh. So anyway, I think, though, as consumers and grassroots, we drive the change, right? Of course, because you can't wait for someone else to change it for you. So we tend to take it into our own hands. So let's get into the meat here, which is metabolic dysfunction and what we're going to do about it. So I think about metabolic dysfunction, I think about metabolic syndrome, which feels like a trash can diagnosis, kind of, right? It's like an umbrella of stuff, right? So kind of like inflammation. I talk about inflammation all the time. That is my jam. But let's talk about what that looks like. What does it feel like? And then eventually some a bit of objective biomarkers, but metabolic dysfunction first. Yeah, absolutely. So The way I like to think about metabolic dysfunction is actually to really start with like, what is metabolism? So metabolism is the set of cellular reactions and cellular processes that essentially create energy from our food and environment. So we take in, you know, food, things like carbohydrates and fat macronutrients, and ultimately to power every single cell in our body, we have to convert those basic substrates into usable energy. So things like ATP. And that has to happen efficiently. It has to happen in a way that doesn't create, you know, undue byproducts that are dangerous, that there's not an excess of substrates that we can't use and then store as other stuff. It just has to happen really, really efficiently. And unfortunately, because of the way we're living these days and what we have exposure to in terms of our food access and our general sort of Western lifestyles, 
a lot of those really promote poor metabolic efficiency and metabolic health. And so for instance, like we have so much access to refined carbohydrates, refined sugars, and this is just creating a huge substrate load in our body of glucose. And that glucose, which is one of our primary energetic substrates, when that goes into the bloodstream, it's going to stimulate the pancreas to make insulin. And when that happens over and over and over again, multiple times per day over years, you're getting these glucose spikes and these insulin spikes. As I'm sure many of your listeners know, this is going to lead you down the path of insulin resistance. And what that means is that the cells become tired of hearing that intense insulin signal, and they actually become a little bit numb to it. And so your body has to produce more insulin to get the same amount of glucose in the cell. And then this just creates a vicious cycle where you're becoming elevated insulin at baseline, hyperinsulinemic. And what happens there is that then if this happens over the long period of time, ultimately your body actually is going to have trouble getting glucose into the cells at baseline. Like it's going to become so resistant that you're actually having trouble driving glucose as efficiently into the cell at all. You can't overcompensate at some point. And then glucose levels really start to rise and your fasting glucose is going to go up. Your average glucose is going to go up. So you've got high insulin, high glucose. So that's inefficient metabolism right there. But what also is happening is that as that insulin is elevated, it's actually a signal to the body that we've got tons of energy from glucose, so we don't need to use fat, this other storage form. And it, so insulin is not only a signal to take glucose up into the cells, but it's also a blocker on fat burning and fat oxidation because it's telling the body there's plenty of this other resource around. We don't need fat. So by having that insulin elevated, you're not going to be tapping into that fat burning going to reduce metabolic flexibility, i.e. ability to flip between glucose and fat burning. And of course, for someone interested in losing weight, it's going to be a huge barrier because you're not burning through your fat for energy. So that's sort of what on the molecular surface, the movement towards metabolic dysfunction looks like. And what's really interesting is that the clinical sort of picture of what metabolic dysfunction looks like is so incredibly broad. It can look like almost anything. So some of the conditions that are associated with blood sugar dysregulation or metabolic dysfunction, they range from things like as simple as acne, premature balding to things like infertility, polycystic ovarian syndrome, erectile dysfunction, fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, of course, diabetes and obesity, things like chronic pain, i.e. fibromyalgia, depression, anxiety, brain fog, Alzheimer's, peripheral vascular disease, hypertension, heart disease. There's literally, you know, it almost feels like every symptom we could think of, there is some relationship between metabolic dysfunction. But this makes sense because every cell in the body needs energy to function. And so if those core pathways are off, are perturbed, are insulin resistant, whatnot, you can imagine how where that's kind of showing up in the body, what cell type is the symptom you're going to get, but it can really look like anything. So metabolic dysfunction wears so many hats. And I think we're not fully aware of that, that there's so many branches to this one tree. And so from my perspective, it is just a very high yield area to focus on in healthcare, because there's just many multifarious benefits that often you might just see melt away as you really nail this core fundamental pathway. So just an example, polycystic ovarian syndrome, leading cause of infertility in the country, fundamentally a metabolic disorder where there's too much insulin stimulating the ovaries that causes them to make more testosterone. It creates menstrual irregularity. People become infertile and you get all these other symptoms associated with high testosterone, like acne and hair growth and all this stuff. So in our medical culture, we might prescribe birth control pills for these people or exogenous hormones to kind of meta control the hormone cycles. We may even prescribe metformin, which is a diabetes medication that is an insulin sensitizer. But neither of those things are actually going to affect the core process of 
blood sugar dysregulation, that if you attacked there and put the investment of energy there, could have so many other positive effects for that patient and that person. So that's kind of the spectrum of metabolic dysfunction in the faces of it. And what's hopeful about it is that no matter where you are on that spectrum, you can really always improve. If you can get your blood sugar under control, minimize those daily spikes and those spikes over time, you're going to create less insulin release in your body. You're not triggering the insulin. It's eventually going to come down and those cells are going to perk up again and be able to hear that insulin become more insulin sensitive again. And you can move in the right direction on the spectrum. So it's actually a very hopeful part of healthcare because it's not like a one directional path where once you've kind of gone down it, you're screwed. No, like you can very much move in the other direction. I loved that so much. And I'm going to recap it in slightly different words in a way, because we're talking about metabolic dysfunction can look like pretty much freaking everything. But at the very root of that is blood sugar instability, which can look like hanger, needing to pack a bunch of snacks in your bag. It can look like weight loss resistance. It can look like hormone dysfunction. PCOS, which you spoke to beautifully, often doesn't get diagnosed properly for years. I think it's seven years is how long it takes for a PCOS diagnosis, irregular periods, maybe hair growing in the wrong place, etc. So you're speaking the right language here, right? We're looking at root cause approach. You thought about what is the biggest, heaviest hitter that we know a lot about that we can influence, and it could freaking change everything people complain about all the time. Blood sugar. Yeah. So blood sugar is not for diabetics. Blood sugar is for everyone to have awesome blood sugar because you need good energy. I mean, that would sum it up right there is like people want good energy, but it's so much dang more than that. Okay. So let's talk about the importance of blood sugar. But also before we get to that off air, we had a little chat about this and we were talking about stress implications on blood sugar. And I would love to talk about that actually really quick before we go into just blood sugar alone. Yes, absolutely. So the intersection with stress and glucose is like absolutely fascinating. And it's really fascinating because this is an area where evolutionary protections have essentially gone awry in our modern world. So it used to be that when we were stressed, it was often like a physical stress. So it was like, you know, there's the classic example of like, you're being chased by a lion, you know, and that's a stressor. And so in that situation, your muscles need glucose to work very quickly and actively. So we have this pathway in the body where stressor creates a hormonal cascade, usually involving cortisol and epinephrine. This signals to the liver, which stores a little bit of glucose for like special needs like this, to dump that glucose into the bloodstream rapidly. You'll see a, a blood sugar rise, and that is to feed the muscles which need it. And so that's an evolutionary sort of advantage. But now, so many of the stressors that we're facing are chronic low-grade stressors, and they're almost universally psychological stressors, honking loud neighbor, text message coming in, a stressful email, a conversation, giving a talk, whatever. These things just register the exact same way as our bodies, as a stress, and they will cause this hormonal cascade, the cortisol, the catecholamine hormones, and they will stimulate the liver to raise your glucose. Unfortunately, you don't need to run anywhere. You're sitting in your computer chair. like You don't actually need that glucose. So you get this glucose rise that is ultimately maladaptive. And we don't want those glucose rises for clearly the reason that I talked about earlier, which is it's going to cause these insulin spikes, which over time can tend lead towards insulin resistance. But there's also things about glucose spiking in its own right that are problematic. Glucose can trigger chronic inflammation. Glucose can trigger oxidative stress. It can trigger glycation, which is where high glucose concentrations in the blood stick to different 
proteins and other cellular structures and change their function. It can actually maybe even have epigenetic changes. So you just don't want those frequent rapid spikes. And we know that stress can do this. There's so much research out about this that's really painting this picture right now. So studies that have been done that have looked at people in war zones and looking at their glucose over time and seeing just like a rapid increase in metabolic dysfunction after living in a war zone. Really interesting study out of Israel that looked at that. People who have had adverse childhood experiences and future metabolic outcomes. And then even acute stressors. So like perceived work-related stress events can cause an increase in glucose. So very, very interesting stuff. And actually acute traumatic experiences can acutely change your insulin sensitivity. So the way the cells are just like immediately sensitive to insulin. So this is something we really want to think about. We always think about food in relation to glucose, but there are so many other factors. And I think stress is one of the huge ones. I would say sleep and movement are other really big ones, but you know, food is necessary for metabolic health, but it's not sufficient. We've got to also dial in the stress, the sleep, the exercise to really maximize our chances of this like really optimal performing machine. Yeah, I love it. It's so great. So that's all hunky dory, right? It's so fun to learn about what's going on in your body. But this is taking it a step further. We're looking at objective measurements, which give us immediate feedback. And this is how we change habits. And this is how we change lifestyle, right? Because it provides us motivation, because we literally see it tangibly. And so frequently, we have a hard time grabbing onto something because we don't grab it. We don't do something tangible. So this is where continuous glucose monitoring came in. Let's talk about the history of continuous glucose monitoring, how it's traditionally used, and what the next frontier is for it and how it marries what we were just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a firm believer in the concept that you can't improve what you can't measure and track. So, you know, without knowing where we're at, how can we move in the right direction? And I think a lot of us have no idea where we're at in terms of metabolic health, because as a young person who's generally healthy, you can compensate for a long, long time before you have just overt lab abnormalities before, you know, your glucose rises into the pre-diabetic range. And something that's interesting is there's 128 million Americans who are pre-diabetic or diabetic. So that's about a third of the country with overt diagnosis of pre-diabetes or diabetes. Of those pre-diabetics, which make up 90 million of that 128 million, 90% don't know they're pre-diabetic. So they go to the doctor and it's like a total surprise or they just don't know. And so awareness is low. And I don't think the average person out there with acne or PCOS or eczema realizes that their glucose might have something to do with this because they've been told their glucose is normal. But that doesn't take into account the full picture and how much our bodies might be pumping out that insulin to keep us in that normal range. So with all that said, the question is then how do we track it? So there's been different ways to do this. One is a finger stick. So you actually just buy this little kit over the counter at the pharmacy and it's like a little lance. So it's a little needle and you prick your finger and you use a test strip and it tells you in your home what your blood glucose is at that moment. These have been traditionally used for diabetic individuals. And, you know, people do these like around, you know, one to five times a day to kind of see where their glucose is, what is after meals, if they need to dose their medication differently. In the past 10 years or so, there's been a new technology that's come online called continuous glucose monitoring. And this is a wearable sensor. You can think of it kind of like a Fitbit for glucose and you stick it to the back of your arm. It's about the size of two stacked quarters, very small and low profile, lasts on the arm for 14 days. And it's actually picking up glucose every five to 15 minutes, depending on the brand and sending it to your smartphone. So you have this vastly more robust data stream about what's happening. So as opposed to like 
maybe catching a post meal glucose spike, you know, but you're not quite sure if you got it at its peak or whether it was going up or going down with a single finger prick measurement. Now you're just seeing the whole curve, like the up, the down, the slope, how long it was elevated for, how much, you know, your stressful call elevated your glucose, how much your oatmeal elevated your glucose. So it's just so much more. And this has been used, it's an FDA approved prescription only device for people with type one or type two diabetes. But as we're learning more about metabolism and how metabolic dysfunction and blood sugar dysregulation is at the root of so many conditions, it really begs the question, like, why wouldn't we use this technology in everyone to really help people get on top of this early and hopefully never get to that late stage? And aside from just preventing future disease to just really optimize our current life, like, you know, help get rid of the hanger. Like if you can keep your glucose spikes down now, even if you're totally healthy, that means that you're probably going to be able to keep your insulin down and get into fat burning more. And that's really the answer to hanger is not relying just on glucose for your energy. If you can flip over into fat burning really efficiently, which is what metabolic flexibility is, less likely to get that starving hanger feeling when you haven't eaten in a few hours. So even for those people who totally have normal blood sugar, just kind of reducing some of that variability can just really up level our current health and wellness. So what my company Levels does is we are bringing this technology to the mainstream market. So making it widely accessible for the just health seeking individuals without diabetes to get access to these devices through our telemedicine network, and then have software that takes this raw data stream, just all these data points and convert it into actionable information. So helping people understand what aspects of their meals was really causing the glucose elevations. And then what aspects of lifestyle, sleep, stress, exercise, et cetera, were also potentially driving those results. So that's what we do. And I think there's just a lot of excitement out there. You see on the blogs and podcasts, people are people are pricking their finger. People are using this for athletic enhancement. People are using this to get the extra edge. And so it's really neat that there is a technology that's going to, I think, take this all to the next level. Yeah. So tell me, it makes sense to understand when meals are, because we usually think about blood sugar, as you said, around food, you know, pre and post meal. But how does the continuous glucose monitor understand in its algorithm that I had a stressful email or work call or whatever? Like what's it, how is it kind of discerning that when it's trying to give you feedback? Well, the hardware itself is only going to pick up the glucose, but this is where the software overlay can be very, very powerful. So the software can pull in other data streams. So the heart rate data, the Apple health kit, the Google fit data, and understand how much you slept the night before, what your heart rate variability was, how many steps you took when your heart rate was elevated, if you did a high intensity versus a medium intensity workout, all of those things. Pair that with the glucose curve and the food logging data and start to make some higher level insights about what might be happening and which of those behaviors are actually driving what we're seeing. And so you can imagine a situation in which, you know, you do some experiments like, okay, I'm having oatmeal for breakfast and on Monday, I'm going to have oatmeal alone on Tuesday, I'm going to have oatmeal after having two hours less sleep. On Wednesday, I'm going to do oatmeal and then take a walk afterwards. And then on Thursday, I'm going to put oatmeal and I'm going to put 30 grams of fat of walnuts on top of it. And all of a sudden, you can really start to parse out like which of those extra variables were changing the way that you processed the glucose or process those carbohydrates into glucose. And the fascinating thing is that everyone is going to have different responses. So it's you and I could both eat the exact same bowl of oatmeal and I could go up a hundred points on my glucose and you might go up five points. And this has been well studied. They've done research. There's a really interesting paper that came out a couple years ago called personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses that put 
continuous glucose monitors on a bunch of healthy people, gave them standardized meals, and then looked at the glucose responses. And they found that you would predict based on this idea of the glycemic index that everyone would respond the same. A food causes this much glucose elevation, but that's not at all what happened. People were all over the place. 100 people ate a banana and it was just spikes, totally different levels of spikes. And they looked at the predictive factors for this. And some of the predictive factors were microbiome composition, anthropomorphic features like body type, which can kind of tell us a little bit about insulin sensitivity, you know, whether you have more of a visceral adiposity versus a subcutaneous fat profile, and then how much sleep people got than like previously. So these other factors actually were mitigating how the carbohydrates turned into glucose in the blood. So testing those things individually can just be a really fascinating and personalized experience. And fortunately and unfortunately, we just can't make generalizations for everybody about sort of what the optimal diet and lifestyle is because it's so much an interaction between all these complexities about our underlying biochemical individuality. That's why we always have pause as practitioners sometimes when let's just use genetic testing as an example. I don't want to use a lot of genetic testing companies because they push out these very generic algorithm-based suggestions for people, which is inappropriate. And so this is a much more personalized. But so I understand we've got our device that's like two quarters. It's sticking onto your arm. And we'll talk about the benefits of this versus pricking your finger. I mean, I think it's like, duh, put it on once. Like you said, it's like dental floss, basically, that needs to go in essentially. I mean, there's a little bit of tool to do it, but it doesn't have pain. No one complains about pain. It stays on for two weeks. And then you swap it out for another one because you do this for at least a month to be able to get. So this is like, really, you're attracting the old biohacker who loves optimal health at the moment. But that's essentially what you're doing. And then it's transferring this information when you hold your phone near it to your app. But in my understanding that it's going to talk to other apps that you might be using to track other biometrics or other health markers more so. Yes, yes. So at this point, it is integrated with Apple Health Kit and Google Fit to get that other wearable data that people might be using to start bringing that in as part of the data analysis. Could you also enter that you exercised at a certain point or anything in the app? Is that like you can input something so it understands that? You can. Yeah, you can make notes about anything, food, exercise, stress, any other life events super easily. If there's something very specific you're trying to track, like let's say you did an ice bath or something, you know, Mm. that's not necessarily built in as an option that you can choose in our product, but you can write a note so that you can track that. Right. And then can you export the data pretty easily? Like if you want to print it out and look at it? Yeah. So, you know, most of the functionality of the app is really an in-app experience, but there's an easy way to get sort of a report at the end that kind of is more the PDF version of this. But the vast majority of the experience is focused around the in-app experience that's really trying to drive this real-time behavior change. So our core thesis is that to make sustainable behavior change, you have to really tighten the feedback loop and close the feedback loop between an action and a reaction and make it as one-to-one as possible. And so that's really most amenable to the actual in-app experience as opposed to like a delayed retroactive report of some sort. Because like one, our CEO, he was eating oatmeal for breakfast for like 10 years. And, you know, he always felt like in the morning, like he had to take his little mid-morning like nap, like he's, you know, and like a little post-meal slump. And he kind of wasn't sure if it was his sleep was poor or too much caffeine or, or the food. But once he put, you put a CGM on in the first day, he realized his blood glucose was spiking to like 210, which is super, super high every time he ate oatmeal. And then immediately when the glucose fell and dipped, 
was when he would have his subjective sort of brain fog, post-meal slump. So all of a sudden, years of sort of misattributing this information to all these potential variables, it was just very clear that there was a one-to-one relationship between oatmeal. And he actually never ate oatmeal again. And now he eats avocado and eggs for breakfast. But you know, certainly it's not about eliminating things like that because there's lots of ways you can modify a food to make it less glycemically unfriendly, adding fat, protein, et cetera. But yeah, so it's just, that's really our core premise is like, how can we make it as real time for people to understand a one-to-one relationship between something they're doing, what the objective data is and how they actually feel. And that trifecta, I think, is really at the root of behavior change. Right. I mean, we were picking on food there, but I would be so curious to know if does a full day of clients back to back to back, what does it do to my blood sugar? Am I having a stress response to blood sugar? It'd be so fun because there's days I don't do that, right? And there's different feelings at the end of the day, but that could be to do to so many things. So it'd be so interesting to see if does this, and I do manipulate variables, but you were talking about people can have a lot of generally quite a few variables and be able to kind of see what this feedback is. And one of the things I do with clients is kind of try to back down on lots of variables on purpose. Like, I hope this makes sense. If you have too many variables at once, you can't tell why the windshield is dirty. And so I try to clean up the variables very tightly for a little bit to try to like one, clear off some windshield, then add things back to see if it, what's hitting the windshield, et cetera, if this makes sense. Right. And so it just reminds me, I just think there's like this, I'm excited about the potential utility here. Right. Of course, because again, it's one giant request by, I always say, for example, just hitting this again, this is going to be good for anyone who already has something. Well, let's say if you have an irregular cycle, right? This would be good for you because mm-hmm. if you have an irregular cycle, that's one out of the two ticks you need on the list for PCOS. You only need two out of the three major symptoms. So if you already have an irregular cycle, like addressing blood sugar is going to be relevant. Addressing blood sugar is going to be relevant for any hormones because blood sugar, it affects everything, right? So I'm just thinking about literally anything <laughs> and how useful and important it could be. So tell us a little bit more, like you've basically gone through some of the tactical pieces. I mean, you've gone through great background. You've given us some tactical that, oh, there's wearable continuous glucose monitoring devices. When I was thinking about this originally, I wasn't thinking about it being a patch, I guess, as much as sometimes you see other wearables that are a little bit bigger. But you're right. This is super progressive. It's like the wearable market. It's very non-invasive. So what comes next? So we've got the wearable there's the app. What do people do with this data overall? I know that they can change behaviors, but like, why don't you use like your story a little bit and how you change behavior? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's multiple phases to using a technology like this. And really, it starts with awareness and then moves into optimization and then moves into accountability. So I think the very beginning is just like, eating whatever you want, what you normally eat, and just seeing what happens. And, you know, have these like totally magical moments where you're like, oh my God, sweet potatoes sent me totally through the roof. I probably shouldn't be doing it in this way. And not even really getting too deep in optimization, but just learning. So like really exploratory building metabolic awareness. Then, you know, moving into some experimentation. So like what happens when I put a bunch of tahini on that sweet potato? What happens when I eat the sweet potato after a Peloton high intensity interval training workout, what happens? And then the end of it sort of, and I'm talking about really about a month framework here. So let's say you're using this for a month, which is what our current product is a one month metabolic awareness experience. And then in that fourth week, you're really actually like taking what you learned from the experimentation and then trying to keep glucose like low, flat and stable, which is what we want. We want it to be just, you know, really just very gently rolling hills, no big spikes and dips. And so that's kind of what I think you can start to do in that first month. But 
I'm a little bit of a different case. I've been wearing this now for 18 months since we started this company. And I can't imagine at this point really taking the sensor off. I think I was really learning how to optimize probably for two, three, four months. And then once it was just very clear to me, like what I had to do in relation to my meditation, my mind body practices, my sleep, my exercise, my food pairing, my food timing, when I kind of got all that sorted out, it really was then more about like staying on track. So seeing your data be bad, it's not a positive feeling. And so you want to keep in the green zone and you want it also helps that I've got all my coworkers can see my data. And so there's a bit of a pure pressure component. So that's been really my experience is like awareness, experimentation, optimization, and then now accountability. And I think for me personally, so I'm plant-based, I'm vegan, I eat tons of carbs. I eat like probably two cups of beans every single day. And for me, it's been a fascinating journey of really optimizing my plant-based diet. I was already eating whole foods plant-based. So not like refined stuff. I wasn't eating like a bat, you know, a sort of a processed vegan diet. It was very, very whole foods based, but there were still foods within that that were just sending me absolutely through the roof. So like white rice, sweet potatoes, corn, grapes, oatmeal, these things were sending me like into pre-diabetic ranges. And so it helps me just figure out how to really minimize some of those massive spikers for me. I definitely moved more away from grains. Like probably I rarely eat rice anymore. And now I'm very into cauliflower and broccoli rice. And I make it myself in my Cuisinart. And I even make sushi with cauliflower rice. So it's been this fabulous. And I love that now probably even more than rice. And it doesn't do anything to my glucose. And so just learning all those little tips and tricks, I've moved really from pasta to zucchini noodles. I've learned that I'm not going to give up sweet potatoes or grapes or corn. They're very healthy foods. But now I make corn chowder that has whole coconut milk and cashews blended into it. And all that fat really buffers that glucose spike. So it's just really about like learning to modify. And that was just such a fun process. And so now I really see it as like, how can we have these diets that we want to eat that are like, I'm never going to become a carnivore or, or like a hardcore standard keto diet person, because that's not in line with my sort of food philosophy. So but how do I take the diet I want to eat, and then reduce all the collateral damage of it by making it a more intelligent, thoughtful, personalized biofeedback informed diet. So I think that's really going to be the future of nutrition is biofeedback informed personalized diets. And I just would be very suspect of anyone saying like, this is the right diet for everyone, because I don't think that's possible given what we know about the microbiome and genetics and all these other factors that impact our response to the same foods between people. So the more we can personalize it and personalize it in that closed loop way, I think it's going to be really empowering for people to yeah, shape the diet they want without the collateral damage. I like when there's recurrent themes. And so we've talked about empowerment. And I always sometimes people say to me, and I think it's the best gift ever, they'll say at some point, like, I have so much more awareness about this. And that's perfect. And this is I love it. I don't know what we called if this was the stages of improvement. But really, it was awareness, experimentation, optimization, and accountability. And I've never thought about it like that before. But I've used all of those words all the time. And so I've never put them in that list. And I love it. And it would be so cool to put like, it's fun to assign how long do I spend in this phase in this phase in this face. I like mnemonic devices. And I like things that yeah. kind of remember where I'm going with something or a kind of a linear plan. It helps us stay focused and center on where we are because we're naturally impatient creatures. So we kind of just want things to change right away. And so being aware of kind of 
where we need to fall in the steps of things. I think it's just cool to talk about what comes after the step of awareness and how do you preserve and and help keep those things. So it's just such a fun conversation. I really appreciate you guys reaching out (laughs) and for sharing level with me. And I know you're in this beta test phase and this podcast may publish in approximately a month, month and a half, two months. And so I think maybe still be in that phase unless that's going to change. So maybe speak to where the company is in two months. I know you said you're definitely doing like intensive testing before getting super wide audience. So where are you guys at now? Yes. So we are, like you said, we're in a closed beta program. So we're really refining the product with a limited number of customers. And we have had about a thousand people go through the program to really refine our product and aiming for more of a full launch in about three to four months. But in the meantime, we really encourage people to go to the website, levelshealth.com, sign up for the waitlist. You'll get, you know, on our newsletter and really high quality educational pieces from academic researchers who are writing really cutting edge stuff on metabolic health that's coming out in our newsletters. Yeah. And certainly follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Levels. There's really fun things you can learn about other people's experience who are in the beta program and kind of get teed up to figure out some experiments you want to run for yourself when using a CGM. So yeah, in two months, we'll probably still be in that closed beta program. But yeah, please connect with us for sure. Yeah. And we talked about if you're still in the closed beta program, that we'll have a code for you guys to skip the wait list. So if you do want to get into the closed beta, because I think education like accelerates you to the front of the line and you've just spent 40 minutes being educated about like about the powers of glucose monitoring. So if you feel like I am not going to wait for this, then we'll have that code for you in the show notes. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we definitely would love to have like listeners who are interested in this and, you know, committing the time, like you said, to really be able to try this out. So we'll have that code available and that gets you, yeah, basically to into the closed beta and to the front of the line. So awesome. We'll be excited to connect with people. Well, I'm excited to do the follow up on this after I've tried it. So thank you so much for coming on today and for talking and doing all the great science chat that we love here. Thank you so much, Krista. It was wonderful to chat with you. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life, and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock.